Uh, the start of the week and plenty from your day's radio. This is Playback Daily. I'm Carol Moran and here's what you might have missed. My dreams and ambitions in life was never to be smoking crack or never to be taking heroin. Okay. I had different dreams and aspirations of what I wanted to be. But there is a small minority of people that are suffering with other issues than just the drug and they find it in that and it becomes then an addiction. And a really classic, your Netflix recommendations. Yeah. That's all AI. It's been learning about humans in general and then learning about you individually, about your likes and dislikes. Um, your your Facebook feed, your Twitter, your Instagram, that's all decided. What you see is all decided by AI. I love your mullet. Well, you were ahead of the curve because when the mullet stopped being a thing, you kept it a thing, despite everything. And then all the young fellas are now mulleting their way through life. And we'll start in the afternoon and on the live line, drug use was under the microscope. Last week, the government announced the establishment of a citizens' assembly, 99 members of the general public and independent chair to examine a range of issues about drug use in Ireland. Um, And the the citizens' assembly would ask to consider the legislative policy and operational changes the state could make to significantly reduce the harmful impacts of illicit drugs on individuals, families, community and uh, wider society. And along with that, uh, for some reason, a load of TDs and, and, well, they are legislators, were asked about their own drug use and the most comprehensive uh, catalogue of it is in yesterday's Sunday Independent by Hugh O'Connell. Uh, Green Party TD Nasser Horrigan said she tried cannabis and ecstasy. She also uh, went went on to say uh, that there are two bars in Leinster House, many smokers and vapours on the campus, so alcohol and nicotine use is frequent. This drug use is regulated by the state to minimise the harm from both these drugs and that harm reduction and that harm reduction approach is exactly what we should do with uh, currently illicit drugs. So what's what's that saying? Um, it is Sinn, Sinn Féin TD Owen O'Brien said he took drugs in late teens, early 20s, without specifying which. Labour TD Aon O'Reardon said he smoked cannabis. Thomas Pringle, Violet, Violet and Gwynne said they, uh, they smoked uh, cannabis. Desi Ellis uh, said uh, cocaine has become a major substance and you, you see it in pubs, you see it everywhere. You even see it in Dal Aaron. There's cocaine in Dal Aaron. We presume he will tell the guards. Um, he said he took a pull out of a cigarette and weed uh, 50 years ago. Junior minister on citizens set up the Citizens' Assembly on Drugs Policy and Public Health, uh, Hildegard Nocton. She, yes, she, she said she tried cannabis in, in her 20s. Leo Varadkar said he tried cannabis. Green Party... Uh, Leader Eamon Ryan has admitted I've been a, a recreational user for user of cannabis for 20 years. He said, but I'm not a pothead. Junior Minister Pippa Hackett said in 2020 she had smoked some cannabis, but she did not dabble in acid or ecstasy. Ecstasy is a killer. I presume people know ecstasy is a killer. And there's a batch of ecstasy apparently going around Dublin at the minute, which is a killer. Um, Health Minister Stephen Donnelly has also admitted smoking cannabis, trying other dr- drugs without specifying. And he said, he told Hot Press, I'm just not going to go down any of those lines. Unfortunate use of the word. If that's OK, he told Hot Press when asked um, if he had taken uh, cocaine. And the list goes on and on and on. Now, uh, Annette Kinahan. Annette, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Joe. Do you believe, like many of the politicians, they should simply have not answered that question? Um, I'm coming from the point of view of a mother who lost a child to drugs, who would have started off with cannabis, which is a gateway drug. I don't think... Drugs are drugs, regardless of what uh, 
type you use. And you have no idea from the start when you use it where you're going to end up. Those ministers were very lucky that they didn't um, continue down the rabbit hole and end up uh, addicts um, like my son and others. Like, I know of mothers who lost their children to one tablet of ecstasy. You know, like, mm-hmm. they're glorifying and saying, oh, I did it and I'm OK, so let's legalise it. Well, they were they, asked. They, well, they're not saying that specifically, but they were asked. And yeah, again, they, were. they did answer. Now, yeah. if, if they did say, in fairness to them, maybe they all said at the end of their contribution, it's just maybe it's, there wasn't enough space in Sunday. Maybe they all said, for God's sake, don't ever try ecstasy or don't ever do cannabis. And, uh, there's loads of evidence at this stage about, about psychosis. So what do you think? It's, in the back, it's, it's against the background of the government establishing, establishing a citizen's assembly about so the drugs. So where are they going to pick these citizens from? Well, they're picked are by they an opinion. Are they going to do their research? Are they going to look into how many of our current drug addicts who are strung out on our streets started off on cannabis and ended up where they are? Are they going to look at the statistics of those that smoked cannabis and ended up with mental illness as a result? Are they going to look at the devastation that's going through our cities with fast gas and everything else? Like mm-hmm. We are under siege with drugs. Well, do you think do you think the politicians should have simply just refused? He said, "No, I'm not going to. I'm not going to say I did or did not take cannabis. I did or did not take ecstasy because that gives the impression that somehow, as you say, I survived it. I got through it." Yeah, I don't think they should have answered on the grounds that they are representing people that have been devastated by drugs. How do you think people feel reading that yesterday and knowing that they lost their children to drug addiction, knowing that they had their families torn apart like mine? I am anti-drugs from start to finish. Like, really, I have lived through the devastation of drugs. Well, what about, the, what about which is an argument put forward by a lot of people and it's put forward in this case by Nessa Horrigan, the Green Party TD. There are two bars in Leinster House, many small and vapours are on the campus so alcohol and nicotine use is frequent. This drug use is regulated by the state to minimise the harm from both these drugs and the harm reduction approach is exactly what we should do with currently illicit drugs. So she's talking about we should be regulating the drugs. Okay. So now we're going to regulate something that they haven't been able to control in how many years? Like, there's never a drought on the streets. Where I live at the moment... The cannabis is being laced with liquid heroin. Like, it is ep- an epidemic. What, what does that and mean? they're I'm going to put a plaster on us. Yeah. Have you heard? Oh, now, all ecstasy is bad. All ecstasy is mad. Yeah, we but don't it, import it anymore. They're all made here in Ireland, all the tablets. But they're killing young people. Absolutely. And these people are, are the standing fam- up and saying, I survived. You know, that's like a cancer survivor standing up and saying, well, I got cancer and I survived and giving people hope. But that's not giving anybody hope. Well, that's Annette there. Then Willie called Joe. Is this fair to say you, can I identify you as a recovering drug addict? You can indeed, Joe, yeah. You can indeed, definitely. So what do you think of what? I don't know whether you you heard. No, uh, I did. I heard heard everything the woman said and I I agree to a certain extent. And some of the things I don't, um, and I and I totally sympathise and empathise for losing a child, as I've lost a lot of, you know, friends of mine and mothers and fathers that I know of friends of mine are in the same predicament 
that that woman is in, and, 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 I, and I get that. I definitely get all that. I don't think what the ministers were saying, that they survived anything. I think they were okay. asked an honest question, and they gave an honest answer. Um, I mean, this society gives out about ministers that tell lawyers, and now they tell the truth, and they've been ridiculed that they survived something. They experimented. Like a lot of young kids in this country, Joe, it starts off as, you know, are you in the gang? Do you want to drag mm-hmm. this? Do you want to take some of this? Do you want to take some of that? And taking drugs for the first time on recreational use, some people can take it and walk away from it, uh, like the ministers, which, you know, I, I, I commend and I take my hat off that they can do that. But there's a small minority of people who are dealing with issues in their life, be it trauma, be it stuff that's mm-hmm. going on at home, that feel comfort and feel solace and feel as if they've been hugged and feel as if they've been loved by this substance that has taken them. When you hear people saying, I'm out of my head, that's what drugs done to me. They took me out of my head from the stuff that was going on at home and they okay. gave me shelter in something good. And unfortunately for me, it led on to a different path and I ended up becoming a drug addict. My, my dreams and ambitions in life was never to be smoking crack or never to be taking heroin. Okay. I had different dreams and aspirations of what I wanted to be. But there is a small minority of people that are suffering with other issues than just the drug, and they find it in that, and it becomes then an addiction. And obviously with so addiction what do you think, and with everything... And Annette, Annette believes, well, I, I, I'll ask, I know, I know this because um, the notes have been given, but Annette believes that this Citizens' Assembly and all this talk about I took cannabis, I took exe is to soften people up for the legalisation of drugs. What do you think of that? Well, that's just one theory. I, 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 don't think, I, I don't think that any drug um, should be, should be legalised in this country, uh, whether that's weed, whether that's cocaine, whether it's fast gas, whether it's anything that does that, that alters the mood of a person for the wrong reasons. And after the Liveline team were contacted about an incident in a house in West Dublin, Gardaí gave this statement. Gardaí are conducting inquiries after a number of children, children, pre-teens, not teenagers, the Garda statement, after a number of children required hospital treatment following an incident at a residence in West Dublin on Sunday the 26th of February. It's, it is understood that children became ill having consumed a product advertised as cannabis-infused edibles. Their conditions, thankfully, but they are in hospital, their conditions are not life-threatening. Um, the product involved, this is, I'm, I'm reading out the Garda statement, so I'm not giving any information that we shouldn't be given or encouraging people. The product involved are marketed as Runtz, R-U-N-T-Z, R-U-N-T-Z, sweets, um, Anyway, guidance and safety advice about these substances have recently been made. So last night in a residence in West Dublin, uh, a number of children were hospitalised because they took these cannabis-infused edibles. Have you heard of, uh, heard of them, Willie? Yeah, they're called gummies. Gummies, OK. Yeah, and, and I, have, I have indeed, Well, Annette, yeah. tell me then, tell me. I don't want to... The, the kids are using them. Like, the Minister there of Justice there two weeks ago came out and said that um, kids of 14 were being used as runners, you know, to 
carry stuff from one place to the other. He needs to take about five years off that realistically. Like you talk, that chap there, Willie, at Fair Play to him for getting off drugs, he talked about people dying on the streets and the whole lot. Mm-hmm. And um, we're talking about these safe areas for people to inject. My son died with a needle in his arm in a dirty toilet and he was there for five and a half hours. If he had had somewhere safe to inject, I wouldn't have lost my child. Exactly. Like, that's the reality, and I'm not on my own. I know of a chap that died in a phone box. I know a chap that got vomited and died. I could... The list goes on. What do you Uh, think, Annette, what do you think can come out of a Citizens' Assembly set up about drugs? They also say they're going to ensure, just the minister who did say she smoked cannabis uh, years ago, I want to ensure that the voice of young people is heard at the Citizens' Assembly as they can be particularly impacted by drug use. But to this end, I've initiated a consultation with young people through Corlin and Oig uh, and youth drugs projects in disadvantaged areas which will be presented to the Citizens' Assembly. Uh, do, you, do you think the Citizens' Assembly is going to come out with any other um, conclusion rather than to, to uh, decriminalise or legalise some more drugs? Well, I'd love to think they would come out with the reality of the situation. I was talking to one of my grandchildren. I have eight grandsons, and two of them are 14. And I asked him, he's in second year in secondary school, about his exposure. He said some of his friends have taken molly, some of them have smoked cannabis, some of them have tried... Molly, yeah, is a drug, a street drug. Some of them have tried coke. You see, this is the problem. These people that talk about one drug... There is a, a list of drugs. I went back and I educated myself on drug and alcohol abuse because I needed to understand why I couldn't save my son. And Willie is dead right. My son's trauma of losing his father when he was five years of age led partly to his drug use. Had I known that, I could have maybe okay. helped him and he might have survived. There's, this is just the tip of the iceberg and what they're on about. They have no idea what it's like on the streets here where I live and where other people live who are losing children left, right and centre to drug abuse. Okay, Molly Molly is a slang apparently for uh, ecstasy uh, uh, or MDMA um, capsules of powder and even, wait for this, even first-time users of Molly, mother of God, even first-time users of Molly have died. And my grandsons are 14, Joe, and they are with their classmates have already tried these drugs. That's Annette on the live line with Joe Duffy. And on Morning Ireland, the Aurora Borealis could be seen in Irish skies. Rachel English was talking to witness Alan O'Reilly from Carlow Weather the morning after. The Northern Lights, or Aurora Borealis, sparkled in many spots across Ireland last night. One of the lucky witnesses was Alan O'Reilly, better known as Carlow Weather on social media, and he's on the line. Alan, I have to say... I missed this display entirely. Looking at social media this morning, an awful lot of people did see the Northern Lights last night. What did you witness? Yes, it was just unbelievable, really. Um, I'd been keeping an eye on it and I tweeted to say that there was a chance. I put up the drone last night, set a long exposure. I took a picture and I was absolutely shocked with what I saw. Um, Some low greens and some high red lights 
it was the most amazing image I've ever taken. And I've taken a lot of images. Anyone that follows me on social media will know. But it was amazing to be able to see it um, so far south here is in Carlo. And even then, I went upstairs and I took it with my iPhone with a long exposure. And it was so clear to see. And now I couldn't see it with the naked eye that clearly. I could get it just a faint hint of it but the images on the camera were just unbelievable Is it unusual for the lights to be seen this far south because I know many years people in maybe Donegal or Sligo might see them but but this is the first time that I can recall people as, as you say as far south as Carlo talking about seeing the northern lights it is a very rare event. It has happened on a couple of occasions, but not as strong as this. So some people would pick up some very faint lights with some very good camera work. But this was probably the strongest display in really a long, long, long time. And as you say, a lot of people captured them in Donegal and Sligo and they were seeing it with the naked eye and the images they were capturing were even more amazing. And yeah. also a few people on planes. Um, one of my followers was flying to Liverpool and she took a picture out the window um, of the Ryanair plane and another pilot also shared pictures and they're just absolutely mesmerising images really to think that you know there was a lot of people had messaged me to say they had gone to Iceland and Finland mm. to see them and had missed out and here we are I'm, I'm tweeting pictures of them from Carlo. And why? Why were the lights visible this far south? So we have, um, well, it's actually now a G3 geomagnetic storm, but we had a CME, which is basically solar flare activity. So a sunspot on the sun um, erupts and sends a flare in simple terms towards Earth. And that collides. If, if it, it's all to do with a lot of different variables that have to come together in terms of the direction as well and the timing of it. But the timing and the direction meant that that hit last night. Now, the good news is for people who didn't witness it last night, there is another possible chance to night. Now, at the moment, North America is getting a G3. So there, you're going to see some amazing images coming from North America in the next couple of hours. But tonight we have another chance. The only problem is cloud cover. We, we, we have a nice, bright, sunny start in the west and we have cloud here in the east. There will be some breaks in the cloud, but it'll be potluck whether you manage to get a break in the cloud tonight. And then obviously we need another display. And it's never guaranteed. It's always something to look out for, but it's never guaranteed. And what sort of a time would be best, do you think? Probably between nine PM and eleven PM. All right, um, so quite early. You don't you don't have to stay up until the middle of the night or anything to see them. No, no, you don't need to pull an all-nighter to see them. Um, it was just before 10 o'clock last night when I took the images. And, and again, probably similar time tonight, but it can kind of just kick off um, at any time really in, in that range. So you, you kind of have to be eagle-eyed or you have to get very lucky. And obviously, you know, the simple thing is get away from the lights and look north. You need to really be in a dark area to be able to have any hope of seeing them. And from what you were saying there then, over the coming hours, we can expect to see images online from people in the United States as as well, that they're likely to be in for a treat. Yes, it's reached the G3, so that means it's really going to be dancing over them. And, and some of the images already I've seen from Calgary in a few places are amazing. So, yeah, it, it really is. It's, it's, it's nature's wonder and it, it's amazing that we're able to see it here in Ireland. But certainly North America are going to have a really good display now at the moment. Well, fingers crossed it'll be there again tonight. Alan O'Reilly from Morning Ireland with Rachel English. And on the Ryan Tupperty show, Shane Byrne and his dance partner Karen Byrne were talking about their experience in Tinseltown Dancing with the Stars. Dancing with the Stars on RTE Radio 1. Sponsored by Muller Corner. Mullerlicious.
And we welcome the Burns, Shane and Karen. Welcome to you both. And thanks for being here, Uh, Shane. That uh, little piece of music, that little jingle will either trigger great (laughs) joyful sounds and thoughts in your mind or horror. Uh, where are we at the moment? Uh, mixed at the moment. <laughs> mixed at the moment. I'm sure it'll haunt me for a long time to come. I'll allow that to happen. At the moment, it's still fond memories, absolutely. I, I always love to know how, why the celebrities get involved in this Fagari. And my question too is, why? Uh, well, to be honest, it's my family's fault. Oh, good. Uh, yes. I When I was approached to do it, first and foremost, I, I have a busy enough life as it is. So I kind of went back to my two girls and my wife and was saying, look, I've been asked to do this, but I don't know. And they went, you're doing it. And I went, no, hang on. I'm kind of busy. No, 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 you're doing it. And the girls were kind of, well, I can wear this dress on the first night yes. and this dress on the second. So that was it. That was it. I was doing it. So you, you, we might talk about that. You don't live in a democracy. You live in a tyranny. Oh, absolutely. And you're told what yes, to do. Yes, female tyranny. Yeah. yeah, well, that brings us neatly to Karen. Uh, Karen. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> uh, Karen. Speaking of tyranny. <laughs> Speaking of tyranny. Uh, Karen. Uh, how are you, but I haven't seen you for ages. Nice no, to see you again. I feel like we haven't seen each other in a long time. But here we are, and when you heard about Shane being your dancing partner, can you give me some of your thoughts? Oh, I was or? ecstatic. <laughs> <laughs> some of the um, expletives you might have... Met, uh, <laughs> no, obviously, I mean, I wasn't expecting much dancing ability. Oh, okay, um, well, I'm not going to lie. Yeah, 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 sure, I think I told you that when we first met. Yes. But after a forced rehearsal, I... I remember going home actually to Jake being like, this this fella can actually dance. Yeah, yeah. He has great rhythm. And I said, no, don't get too excited to myself. I said, let's wait till the next day to see if he remembers everything I told him. The next day he came in and actually could dance the routine. And I thought, hang on, this is too good to be true. <laughs> yeah. And then I throw stuff at him every routine. Like, can you do this, this? And he'd say, well, no, I can't. But sure, I'll give it a go. And there he was, cartwheeling, tumbling, the whole the whole shebang. Oh, when I saw that first cartwheel, <laughs> I done thought... done three. <laughs> I saw... What did they call it? The Muller's Wheel? The Muller's Wheel, yeah. I thought, well, first of all, obviously it was very entertaining. But you you are so nimble <laughs> and so agile. I don't and, know whether nimble is the word. But. Uh, well, I, I would because you're, you're a big guy, you're a former rugby player, um, and you can tell that looking at you. And... And yet you bounced around like a, an unlikely gazelle. <laughs> Do you know what I mean, Karen? You must have spotted that. There were oh, some could, the little... Come here, when I seen him try it, he goes, oh, hang on, I'll give it a go and see if I can do it. I've seen him do one. I said, hang on a minute, can you do another one? He done another one. I said, hang on, can you do three? Three of them. He was... It was great. I, met, I just remember the whole crowd that night was literally like in awe. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the whole yeah, internet went wild. silence for what, a split second. What were you... I, I think we're, we're fairly similar in age. So what, yeah, what we were are, you... Yeah. Uh, um, what were you? Uh, I'm trying to go back. Go what were you? <laughs> get it who were you? Who were you, who were you <laughs> dancing to back in the late '80s, early '90s? Like what music? Ah, well, were you, what music? I remember, like we out nightclubs. We used to all just lep around the place. What are these nightclubs you speak of? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> don't you pretend you don't know? <laughs> Club '92, etc. Yeah. I'll pretend I know where that is. What, yeah, were you, yeah. what were you dancing to? I mean, all the all well, the bangers. Go, yeah, anything. Yeah. And you, now, did you like to dance? Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Always, like, would always myself and the missus would always be up dancing. You love to dance, yeah, okay. yeah. I, I don't mind doing that at all, but that's completely different to what. No, this I appreciate is. that. You know, one <laughs> one has nothing to do with the other. What are your daughters' names? Alex and Kerry. And how do they uh, feel about your experience? 
They loved it. Did they? They absolutely and they loved, loved dressing it. up and going yeah, to the gig. Yeah, and, and, and it was great. And my wife, Caroline, like they, they went to nearly every every week and uh, they loved it. They got, absolutely oh, yeah. loved it and, and really got into it. You know, they'd be telling you all, you know, and such and such did well and he was yeah. brilliant. And she the analysis was. Oh, yeah. Uh, what sort of reaction are you getting down the shops? Incredible. Yeah. The reach of this show oh, yeah. is just incredible. Because it's, like, it's such a family-friendly... Yeah. You know, everyone... Cause it's a real couch. It's a real Sunday yeah. afternoon, evening, everybody's sitting around. Because, like, everywhere I went, and, like, obviously through work and things like that, I'd be going to places where you wouldn't expect it. But everywhere, construction yeah. sites... Ah, all the lads shouting down. You know, yeah. everybody do knew. Yeah, do the muller, yeah. <laughs> Give us a muller wheel yeah. there, yeah. Everybody, Super value, everybody me, vegetable aisle. Somehow I think this is going to follow me a while. <laughs> the muller's wheel, I think. I think it might. Yes, it might. definitely. I love your muller. I mean, as you said. Oh, sure, no, you. I mean that. As, as, I mean, because it, what I love about it is it's like, well, you were ahead of the curve because when the mullet stopped being a thing, you kept it a thing despite everything. And then all the young fellas are now mulleting their way through life. And you're now, you're like the king of the mullets. Like, <laughs> <laughs> you're like the mullet so, emperor. I think, Do you know what I mean? I think there's a compliment in there somewhere. I think, if you yeah. dig deep enough, Shane, it's there. So you're the mullet king. You're like, yeah. like if, if Jim Morrison was the lizard king, you're the mullet king. Yeah, well, the problem is now when it goes back out of fashion, I'll still have it. I, I'm not for changing. So Ryan asked Shane and Karen about the remaining contestants. So a uh, quick, di- quick run through the dances last night. Kevin and Laura, they did a rocket man, <clears throat> excuse me, Elton John. It was a foxtrot. They got... Uh, Three eights. Uh, quick thoughts on that, Karen? Um, I think I probably would have scored them a little bit higher. Um, yeah. I think the overall dance, the performance was really good. And like that, to open the show is very nerve-wracking. And I think Kevin done a really good job. Yeah, he's had yeah. very consistent, isn't he? he? Is, he's, yeah. he's, he's, he's lashing. Uh, now, Suzanne Jackson and Michael did... Well, I just, I'm just a sucker for the Charleston. I, I, I love yeah. it so much as a dance. And they did... Um, they did that and they got a big score then, 29. Yeah, tens. for me, that was our best dance. Yeah. She looked like most confident and had a good time. So, yeah, I told her straight away. I was like, wow, that was that was great. The judges keep talking about, um, and rightly so, if they, they seem to sense when somebody's enjoying the experience as well as oh, getting it right. I think that's, right. that's the main thing. That's what I yeah. said to Shane before we mm. actually went out and danced last night. It's not all about what the judges say or the marks. It's it's leaving the floor going, wow, I had a great time. That's what dancing should be. Okay. So, I love seeing people enjoying themselves. It's not enough just to get through it. You yeah. have to kind of yeah, come yeah. out yeah. smiling, which I think was something well, you yeah, were doing. That's, that's the way we've always done with our, our routines was the entertainment as well because we're showing that we're absolutely having a ball doing it as well. Um, and you can see that. Uh, Damien and Kylie, they did uh, Sweet Child of Mine with the orchestra again. That was pretty good. Yeah, Pass it it over. Yeah. Uh, nine, ten and nine. And again, a very consistent mm-hmm. um, dancing from very Damien. So. Yeah. He, he's, he's been a dark horse. He's really doing well. Uh, from the get-go, Brooke has delivered the goods there. She's there with Robert. I thought the the uh, orchestra playing of Running Up That Hill oh my God. was beautiful. Honourable mention for uh, Yu Tang on the cello. It was uh, amazing. Wasn't it something? Yeah, uh, absolutely amazing. And that, I think, no doubt, helped elevate that performance. Yeah. Uh, three yeah. tens. Yeah. First three great. tens of First this season. Tens, well done. Yeah. Uh, Panty and Dennis... Uh, did uh, okay. <laughs> give me, give me, give me a man after midnight. Give me, give me. Yeah, yeah. And they did that sort of uh, Abba thing in the middle. Tango. Of it. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I enjoyed that. Yeah. They got a nine and two eights, and it was good crack. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Carl and Emily again. They did Gangman style uh, by Sai uh, as a salsa, um, m- m- fully mad. Um, and the the gentleman who was singing with the orchestra. Uh, let's have a quick reminder of this. Like, is it Korean? He was. Yeah. 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 
Good man, Aston Jones uh, singing in Korean with the RT Concert Orchestra <laughs> and Dancing with the Stars last night for Carl Mullen and Emily Barker. Yeah, I was, ta- I was talking to him about that and he just wrote it all out phonetically and learned it. Well, good on him. I mean, that, that was, was great. amazing. Uh, and the, the lad scored uh, two eights and a seven. Okay, so who's going to win this thing? Karen? Oh, you always ask this. I do, yeah. yeah. That's my job. Shane, yeah, I Karen. know. Yeah, come on. Um, oh... <laughs> I actually loved Carl and Emily last night and I loved the... Ho- I just think he's so cute and I just think he works so hard. Um, I, I don't have one winner. I don't know. It's never the one you think it's going to... Well, other than season two with Jake, that was obviously oh, the, well, obviously. the winner. Uh, Shane, who's, <laughs> who's your... I want, I want to be one of the lads. You As in? Me? Yeah. Go well, on, you have to pick you know, one, Shane. Huh? <laughs> oh, well, like, listen... <laughs> Got on very well with all the guys, Carl Kevin. and Kev this and Dave. Like you know leaders of political yes, parties trying to get, yeah, a, yeah. get a, a straight answer. To give one. We have to go back. But now and you know how they feel. We're going to we'll see them in a couple of weeks. Only asking you about a dancing competition. You know, I'm not asking you about the future well, of the economy. Shane should have won, so we won't go down yeah, that route. Now yeah. you're talking. Now so, you're talking. So Shane, yes, I put it to you. Yes, who's going to win this thing? Kevin, thank you. Karen, straight out. Just I can't give you a straight answer. I'm sorry, Ryan. Karen Byrne and Shane Byrne for the Ryan Tuberty Show. And on today with Claire Byrne, with nearly 90 million people eligible to vote, a snapshot of the political situation in Nigeria in the wake of the weekend's elections. Millions of people are awaiting the outcome of Saturday's elections that will determine who will become president in Nigeria and control its National Assembly. Voting in Africa's most populous country was marred by widespread delays and some scattered violence. But fears of widespread chaos proved unfounded. Now, the Independent National Electoral Commission has so far released official results from only one of the 36 states and technical issues mean that the final election tally is not expected for perhaps several days. Well, I'm joined now in the studio by Graeme Finlay, who's a lecturer in the School of Politics and International Relations at UCD. Graeme, good morning to you. Thank you for coming in today. So talk to me about what happened on the, the voting day, because I mentioned the widespread delays some violence as those polls opened. What happened on Saturday? So Nigeria has a a long history of electoral violence, electoral fraud, uh, vote buying and things like that. And the violence doesn't just happen on the day, but has been seen in the in the lead up to the election. This has happened before. There were in, you know, so we have an insurgent candidate who's outside the two main political parties, Peter Obi, who's from the south. And in his home state and and states which are likely to go well for him, armed men showed up at ballot places and took away the the ballot boxes. And all of this is complicated by uh, the fact that they rolled out a new electronic voting machine system, which um, is great because obviously they're harder to take away. But there have been complaints that those results are not being uploaded or uploaded correctly. And, you know, many Nigerian voters don't trust them and and all the things we've seen with electronic voting around the world. Mm -hmm. Is this why we have this question mark over this early tally in one of the states? I, I, the one thing about Nigerian elections is there's always a question mark over lots and lots of things. Mm-hmm. I mean, the actual result in a Tiki state, which um, is a southern state where um, the, the the leading candidate of uh, the the conforming, the ordinary parties, the big two parties, the all people, progressives Congress is Bola Tinubu. And he, this is a state which is good for him. He has a lot of support there. And so he seems to have won very handily by the, by the results which were announced. Mm-hmm. And again, they were expecting a massive youth vote for Peter Obi. 
and it doesn't appear in these results. They're immediately contested by obese people saying there's fraud, there's, you know... Um, no, he's the progressive candidate, but he's he's 61, isn't he? He is, but he's a spring chicken compared to the other candidates. So, you know, Ni- Nigeria has, since democracy in 1999, alternated between two large parties, the... Uh, all Progressive Congress, um, led by uh, Bola Tinubu uh, at this time, and the People's Democratic Party by Atiku Abubakar. And uh, I mean, how big are these machines and how entrenched are these parties? Well, uh, uh, sorry, Tinubu's slogan is, it's my turn, okay. which is not maybe the most inspiring one. And Abubakar has run five times already, and this is his sixth go at the presidency. Mm. So these are machines and these are machine politics. I just want to get a, a sense of the scale of this election. We're talking about 87 million people who are eligible to vote. Well, or even more. And, and the youth vote is, is going to be crucial. And turnout um, is crucial because even though 87, even 90, 93 million people are eligible to vote, um, turnout in the last election was 34 uh, percent. And the, um, the question is whether the youth vote will turn up because people have said, look, traditionally the youth have not voted. Mm-hmm. But, but, but since uh, 2019, there's been a large youth protest against police violence, um, particularly by the special anti-robbery squad, which um, you know, led to the suppression of one protest with live fire killing at least 15 people in 2020. So the youth, um, and this is what my, my brilliant Nigerian student who, who, who's so glad that we're covering this, wants wants people to know is the youth see this as the, their last chance to sort of live in a democratic Nigeria where their voice is heard and to determine their own future because Nigeria is set by huge problems which are, have really disillusioned the youth. Poverty, security risks, a failed currency reform, which means that people just literally can't get cash if you're a street trader somewhere or something like that, and, and so many other problems. And this is why this election is being seen as so important, is it? Because of that youth movement. Yeah, the youth had, you know, the reason the voter turnout was so low is that people had really given up on the two main parties. And Peter Obi, who was in uh, the uh, People's Democratic Party, switched suddenly to the very small and obscure Labour Party uh, at the last minute. Uh, But he has really attracted a youth vote. Um, His conservative traditional critics are saying he's just a social media candidate. And while he may be winning on social media, it's not going to happen at the polls. Mm -hmm. Uh, We we did see a very large turnout uh, yesterday. And despite all the problem, or Saturday, despite all the problems of polling in Nigeria, where half of the people say, I don't know or won't say, all the problems about um, electoral issues, um, it does seem like a high turnout could quite comfortably hand him uh, the presidency. Mm -hmm. The wildest part about this is while you just have to get the most votes, um, you also have to win 25% of the vote in 24 out of the 36 Nigerian states. And that's something we should look for in the coming days. Graeme Finley, lecturer at the UCD's School of Politics and International Relations from Today with Claire Byrne. And in the afternoon on the Ray Darcy Show, Jack O'Donovan Traw was talking to Ray about conservation, protection and the Kingdom of Kerry. Uh, Jack O'Donovan Traw recently travelled to Vancouver, Canada for a screening of his short movie The Kingdom of Kerry at the Festival of Ocean Films. Uh, the movie showcases our connection with the sea and the need to future-proof our coastal waters. Uh, and Jack joins me in studio. How are you doing, Jack? Great, thanks for having me. 
Jack O'Donovan Traw. Sinead, yeah, exactly. Traw as in beach or... Exactly, yeah, yeah. There's so many O'Donovans in West Cork, you see, that it's hard to tell one from another. So every O'Donovan gets their own kind of nickname depending on where you're from. Right. Exactly, yeah. So my family are from Montraw Darug, which is the Red Strand, just yes. outside Clannacilty. I know it, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, So that's originally where my family have come from. My grandparents still live just down the road. So that's where the Traw comes from. Ah, that's a lovely part of the country. Absolutely, you're yeah. You're near yeah. Galley Head there. Yeah, exactly, exactly. You can see it from my grandmother's window, yeah. Oh, yeah, right, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I've stayed in Head there. Have you? In the yeah. lighthouse yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, they're beautiful out there. That was amazing. I bet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so, so no wonder then that you have a love and a passion for the Atlantic Ocean uh, and you want to make sure uh, that we keep it. Well, I suppose we've done a lot of damage, haven't we, so far? As When I say we, I mean humans. Oh, absolutely. Look, absolutely we have. But I think we're at the time now where we know the problems and it's about time to put the solutions into practice because right. we also know what they are. It's just about acting on them, you know, and that's, oh, that's okay. really... So, so you went about interviewing people who uh, work, as in fishermen, uh, people who are uh, in conservation, and all, they all said the same thing, really, didn't they? Absolutely, yeah. So the film we made um, with, so I'm the communications officer at Fair Seas, which is um, an Irish campaign led by our leading environmental NGOs and networks to create marine protected areas. And so we made the film with this community voice method of filmmaking, where you talk to all the different people in a community and what we saw was you know usually you might have people who don't speak to each other on the ground so the divers mightn't always get to speak to the fishermen or the the boat operators might get to speak to the conservation people but we all want the same thing from the sea we want healthy seas we want to be able to pass down what we've had from healthy seas to the next generation so we all want really the same thing and it's about getting the word out there about protecting our seas within communities and showcasing how we can really work together now to protect them Okay Uh, so MPAs Uh, at the moment they're, what's the percentage of our seas that are MPAs? I mean, when Fair Seas started about a year ago, we were at 2% of Irish waters that were within marine protected areas. areas. Yeah. So these are a bit like national parks, but in the sea, you know, the, the ah. high value nature areas in our seas. And just before Christmas there, um, Minister Malcolm Noonan announced... Uh, uh, bumping up that figure and now it's about 8%. However, the crucial thing is that no matter what the percent is, currently we don't have any management plans or monitoring in place to actually see what's happening in those areas. So right. we're hoping for 30% of the seas to be protected by 2030 and the government have actually signed that commitment themselves. But what we need to have is robust management of plans course. in place with them and as well like that, getting on the ground, talking to communities. We have to have stakeholders involved, people on the water. Everyone has to be a part of the journey. So you can have as many rules and regulations as you like but if they're not policed they're all but useless Exactly and if they're not even you know um, taken upon by the local communities you know if we don't have engagement from people who are on the water then it's, we have okay. the same issue How do you make this come to life for people who don't live by the sea? How do you make it uh, how do you connect with them and their lives? So I'd imagine through their plates their dinner plates is it? Well it, it, first of all um, yeah definitely your dinner plate but second of all the very very basic thing of your breath the fact that over 50% of the oxygen that you're, you and me are breathing in this studio today has been generated by the ocean so tiny tiny little plants that grow on the surface of the sea um, that are actually generating all of that oxygen so every second breath we take essentially all that oxygen has come from the sea and Ray asked Jack about consumer knowledge when it comes to the seafood on their plates do you think people know where their, their seafood's coming from? For example, if, you, if, if somebody has prawns tonight for dinner in a salad or in a curry or whatever, 
where are they likely to come from? So, yeah, I mean, there are so many different species of prawns. Actually, a lot of the prawns we eat when you talk about prawns come from countries as far away as, you know, Indonesia, like far from the far um, other side of the earth. Um, and what I'd say is an amazing thing, yeah, to connect to the sea is if we look at our plates. And if you're in the supermarket and we're looking at species, it can be tricky. It can be a tricky place to figure out where your food has come from. Often you'll have the species name and we have all these terms as well now, like packed in Ireland or produced in Ireland, yeah. but it might not necessarily be caught here. We do have a lot of Irish seafood obviously available in our supermarkets. We do have a lot of that. But what I'd say to people is, yeah, getting to know the fish on the fish counter and getting to know maybe how they arrived on the fish counter because some, there's some species, it's not that one species is more sustainable than another. I mean, sometimes that is the case, but it's often how the species is caught can have a big impact on the ocean. Jack O'Donovan Traw from the Ray Darcy Show. And on today with Claire Byrne, cravings. Has an intense yearning for a piece of chocolate ever stopped you in your tracks? Do you dream about donuts, fantasise about a big greasy fry? Well, a food craving is an intense desire for a specific food and it can hit due to emotional and psychological reasons. But the science behind what is going on in your gut can have a lot to do with those impulsive decisions. I'm joined now by Orla Walsh, who's a dietitian, and Dr Sabina Brennan, neuroscientist and author at Thank you both for being with us today. And we're going to discuss why we almost go into autopilot when the food we are craving pops into our brains. So Orla, to start with you, why is it that the food that we crave, the food that stops us in our tracks, it's often high in fat or high in sugar? My point is we would never really crave broccoli or an apple, would we? Um, well, we're craving hyper palatable food. So in other words, really tasty food. Um, and, you know, these foods taste really nice. Um, they're easy to eat and easy to overeat. And these are the foods that we're reaching for, especially if um, the craving is coming from an emotional response. So, Sabina, then these feelings, they take over our brain sometimes, don't they? I mean, a lot of people <laughs> will be familiar with that feeling that we're going into autopilot when we have a craving for something. Yeah, yeah. The thing is, the thing is with these foods, the hyperpalatable foods, they kick off um, a, a, a dopamine spike. So when you eat, when you take in food, um, you will get a dopamine, a dopamine release, triggering you know pleasurable fe- feelings and motivation to engage in that activity again. That happens, you know, when we eat, when we have sex, you know, things that are important for survival. But with these um, highly processed foods, the spike is much much higher, um, and so we kind of get a greater kick out of those. And then, um, you know, it's kind of related to habitual behaviours as well that um, if you repeatedly um, engage in something, you know, there's a trigger. It could be your Netflix show that you want to watch or it could be the time of day, it could be lunch. Um, You engage in the behaviour, eating the chocolate, and you get this pleasurable reward. Mm -hmm. But with time, what happens then is you actually start to anticipate the reward. And that's kind of where craving comes in. Craving drives it. So once you see the trigger, then you start to get this um, this craving. What about, Orla, the why? Why we have the cravings in the first place? Is it because we haven't had enough sleep? Our hormones might be out of kilter? Our diet is lacking in something? Yeah, there's lots of reasons. And for most people, what I, I describe it as is picture a lake and we're going to throw a stone into the lake and watch the ripple effect and see what happens um, downstream. So, for example, if someone comes in with a 
extremely high cravings in the evening time, what we might do is look at breakfast. And we know that when people eat enough calories at breakfast or enough protein at breakfast and sometimes switch to a savoury breakfast, that can have a big impact on evening eating patterns. Now, of course, there's habit there. So you kind of can quickly get into the habit of having a treat like foods in the evening time. And in the same way, it doesn't take long to break that habit. Mm -hmm. But for most people, what I do is I actually look at what's happening at the start of the day. Okay, because that, that might influence the end of it. Exactly, because if we don't eat enough, we're kind of chasing hunger for the rest of the day. And in the same way that if someone starts with a savoury breakfast, they're not getting that sweet craving first thing um, first thing in the morning. So if you have something sweet for breakfast, you might chase something sweet then for the rest of the day. Interesting. But Sabina, those healthier habits, they might help us manage those cravings, but they won't make them go away completely, will they? <laughs> They won't make them go away completely. And the type of food we eat, you see, the thing is, you know, a food intake is controlled by two complementary pathways, a homeostatic one and a non-homeostatic one, the hedonistic one, the one that, you know, we're talking about here, the craving. But the homeostatic one is the one that should tell us um, when to eat when we've low energy. The non-homeostatic, the hedonistic one, um, that, that, that increases our motivation to eat, even if we've got no energy depletion. Um, so, um, and, and taking in sugar disrupts the body's natural ability to sense hunger and satisfaction. So it all gets kind of messed up and your, your hunger hormones go out of whack. And as you touched on earlier with sleep, um, a chronic stress, lack of exercise, they all make cravings um, more difficult to um, address. So as you just said there, even if you override with a healthy habit, and you can actually come to crave things like apples and healthy food, um, you, you can. It just doesn't have the same sort of um, spike that the, the sweet stuff does. But what's really, really important, I think, if you are trying to, um, you know, start to eat more, overcome those cravings, is to take into account the other factors. And Sabina spoke about the role sleep can have in appetite and cravings. If you have disrupted sleep, you're inclined to consume about 300 more calories uh, the next day and you'll crave those from fat and from sugar. Also, it disrupts ghrelin and leptin, the hormones that tell you you're either hungry or um, that you've had enough. And basically, um, they get switched around and you Mm -hmm. have this thing that says you're more hungry than you actually are. Same with stress. Um, When cortisol is released, it seems to also influence the dopamine and actually encourage you to crave more food. Um, Exercise is a great way around it because it seems to um, counteract that um, in terms of the, the, the craving, it helps immensely. And then obviously we hardly touched on it, your microbiota play a huge role um, in cravings. They really, you know, it's involved in your second brain and sends messages to your brain um, if you have bad gut bacteria or rather the unhealthy good ba- gut bacteria that craves chocolate, it's going to send messages to your brain. So looking after what you eat and eating things like fermented foods, um, kefir, miso, those kind of things can help actually, um, you know, boost the, the good book, uh, gut bacteria and help you can, um, can, overcome those can I ask Orla? Well. Can I ask Orla about that, that this gut-brain access that uh, Sabina was just explaining to us? Do you agree that we can influence that by what we eat? Yeah, absolutely. So what, what we focus on is trying to diversify 
the gut microbiome. So it's not just bacteria, although it's predominantly bacteria. It's also things like yeast um, and viruses. Um, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. Um, you know, I, I think we've come to terms with the fact that you can have good bacteria and bad bacteria. Um, but I suppose the most important thing is to diversify it. And if we're eating the same thing day in, day out, our gut is eating the same thing day in, day out. So it's really important to focus on a variety in your diet. So I suppose if, some, if someone wanted a target, we tend to encourage people to have 30 different plants a week. So it's not just carbohydrates and fruits and veg, it's herbs, it's spices, it's nuts, seeds, legumes. It's trying to diversify your plant intake so that you diversify your gut bacteria. Mm-hmm. And that's important because the gut and the brain are all constantly communicating. And the, what the bacteria do is they talk to our nerves and that talks to our brain and vice versa. Um, everyone's felt butterflies in their tummy and uh, so they, they can relate to that conversation that their gut and brain are having. So I suppose the most important thing to diversify your gut is really the, to diversify your bacteria in your gut through um, a varied diet. And for most people, that doesn't mean taking probiotics um, because a lot of the probiotics on the market haven't even shown to make it to the gut and pass the uh, acid in our stomach and make it there. It's more about having a variety in terms of your, your diet and your, your vegetable and fruit intake, is it? Yeah, absolutely. So um, we're all devils for having the same thing in the shopping list um, week in, week out. So again, it's just making sure that we're branching out. And sometimes eating in season is a, a good way to do that because it makes us change with the season. Dietitian Orla Walsh from Today with Claire Byrne. And on the Ryan Tuberty Show, Dr. Patricia Scanlon is Ireland's first AI ambassador and the founder of Soapbox Labs. She popped into studio to talk about the future of AI and the surprising here and now. We'll start at the beginning with this. I mean, you've got your own story and I, I want to talk about that. But I do want to try and uh, get to the bottom of the AI and the definition of what artificial intelligence as we know it is. So. Uh, for people like me who aren't very techni- technical or technological uh, listening in this morning, I keep hearing AI and chatbot and all the rest of it. Let's go through it softly, yes. gently and okay. with, with great clarity uh, and try and figure out what this all is all about. So AI in itself is what? AI is the ability for a machine to perform a task that would normally require human intelligence. Yes. So that's one definition and be really clear about it. People argue this to death about what the definition of AI is because you know what? It's not clear yet. It's people have their own opinions. We find that it's definitely not just a case of a computer says if this, then this. You know, like simple decision. It's when the computer has to learn from lots of data about you know that have been labelled in the past about stuff that's happened, and then it takes all that information creates what we call models and then the model decides what's most likely to happen. So, you know, simple things you'd be used to seeing. Um, your speech recognition system, so like your Siri. Alexa. Alexa is Siri. AI. Yeah. yeah, that's AI. That's, that's AI. That's all voice AI. So what happened there was you, we would have taken lots and lots of, and I mean lots of data, like I know thousands, hundreds of thousands of hours of data that's labelled, right? It's Some of it's labelled, maybe it's not all of it. And it's all ingested into a model. And then when you come along and you say, hey, Siri, play Florence and the Machine, like, you know, it will actually recognise your voice, will map it to all these patterns, and then will say, oh, yeah, what's most likely has been said was this song wants to be played. Okay. That's AI. 
your predictive text on your phone is when you're sending a, a yeah. text message. You know when it kind of yeah. guesses what you're it trying to say. It always puts the word abs for and, <laughs> yeah. uh, which drives me mad, yeah, especially yeah, me yeah. of all people. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> kind of offence. I think I'm being gaslit by my phone. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> my, yeah, 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 yeah. We don't know what's going on there, but we can guess. <laughs> Go on. Um, and, and really classic, your Netflix recommendations. Yeah. That's all AI. It's been learning about humans in general and then learning about you individually, about your likes and dislikes. Mm. Um, your your Facebook feed, your Twitter, your Instagram—that's all decided. What you see is all decided by AI. So one one person's uh, marveling at the at the at the the wonder of it all is another person's scepticism about the creepiness of it all. Yeah, would yeah, that be yeah, fair yeah. to say? Yeah, a hundred percent. I mean, you know, we there is we are giving up every day so much of ourselves into these technologies and there has to be an acknowledgement there that they're, they are learning and they're learning about you and then you can choose whether you want to part- participate in that world or not and that's well, in that's social true. media. That, that's you know? true and you can yeah. choose to be online or offline. Yeah, so yeah, absolutely. Let's yeah. talk about the chat bot uh, thing because yes. that is, a, I'm, 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 you know, uh, flabbergasted by it and again, just the simplicity of, of the description of it and then we can take it from there. Chatbot being what in practice? Yeah, so it, it, what is it, what's new and what everybody's talking about is ChatGPT. ChatGPT, sorry. There you go. Yeah, yeah. I, even I'm getting the but term they are, right. Yeah, but they, are, they actually, they, yeah. they will actually ultimately uh, kind of power the chatbots. So ChatGPT is, is something that's been around for a few years but what they did recently in the last couple of months was put a face on, an interface so you and I can sit down at our computer yeah. have a go to ask it questions get us to give summaries of books and articles and write or things do my essay do Your my essay. homework yeah it, all that yeah. right and what it's done is given us all the public you know not just people like me in the industry a window into what's possible and what's there. So we've all heard about the power of AI. I think it's honestly the first time everybody's been kind of blown away because they've actually got access to it. And now you've got hundreds of thousands, millions of people all over the world testing it, right? Trying out different things and they're uncovering a lot of problems with it. They're yeah. covering the power of it. They're coming, uncovering the limitations. Yes. So what it's doing is it pretty much ingested the text of the internet. The oh, text Books, articles, uh, forums, you know, conversation, everything. It ingested all that. And then what it does is then you ask it a question. It has had so much input. And what it's coming out is something that sounds very human-like. And one great way to describe it was like, it's as articulate as a, you know, a professor, but with the intelligence of a seven-year-old, you know. Um, You know, in some ways it sounds great, but there's an awful lot of factual errors behind it as well. Really? Yeah, huge, huge, huge. Oh, huge. really? Yeah, so yeah. that's that's dangerous. If you say, uh, talk to your computer and say, you know, write me an essay about Alexander <laughs> the Great and suddenly Alexander the Great was, you know, X, X Y, Z yeah. and, uh, but also founded the internet or whatever. These are they big glaring mistakes? Yeah, I mean, on it's huge. I, I showed my daughter, um, Leisha. She, you know, she's thirteen. She's in yeah. first year. I showed her. To, Let's put in your novel. Write a synopsis of the novel she did before Christmas. Oh, Let's God. just see it. Show her the power of it. And straight away, she pointed out three fairly big errors in it. Yeah, she'd done the work herself. Like you know, she knew that she had read the book. Good. I thought that was really interesting. And straight away, and I was kind of a bit blown away by that. How quickly? Um, and that's what people are saying. Look, if you want something that has vague answers. There is nothing concrete, a description of something, whatever. But if you're asking for something very concrete, it's getting stuff wrong. It's attributing it wrong. It's doing so research. tread carefully. And Ryan asked Patricia about her role as Ireland's first AI ambassador. 
So the government has an AI strategy that it released a couple of years ago. And part of that strategy was to have appoint an AI ambassador. Um, and the idea is to help start these conversations, right? So right. it's really important as we go forward. It's going to be such an important technology that we want to start conversations with the youth um, of Ireland. Like so we had the National Youth Assembly on AI. We want to start it with businesses. We want to start it, you know, academics are already deep in it, but make, you know, start those chats about how we can bring that out into business, how we can, as Ireland Inc., can benefit from their huge amounts of benefits with AI, um, but also help mitigate the risks that people yes. are concerned about, how we align ourselves with the EUA Act, and basically start those connections. And you're have navigating, this this navigating fairly uncharted territory. Yeah, yeah. And stimulating conversations is really important that everybody, yeah. the public in particular, are are asking the questions and people in, you know, in roles of responsibility here when it comes to the regulations and legislations are listening to people's concerns and everybody, it's all very transparent, right? So it's happening at the right time as we see AI exploding. Yeah. The EU are regulating right now and, and, and will actually be done in the next couple of months on the EU AI Act. And it's important for us to be having these conversations. Sure. And ChatGPT helped that, to be honest, like because it, yeah. it it drew attention to it, and that's really important at a time when it's exploding. Well, that's it. Uh, I was talking to three of my young, you know, the younger. What is it? Younger, eighteen up to twenty four or five uh, over dinner on Saturday, and this came up, and it took up a fairly large chunk of the conversation yeah, yeah. on the basis that, and, and what my conclusion was uh, that one, I was a little nervous about the technology, uh, but two, they speak fluent. Yeah, uh, technology. Yeah, I speak less than pigeon technology, yeah, yeah. Um, and because, as you rightly say, we need to improve the fluency yes. for people of my vintage who mightn't be yeah. that. And I don't mean to tire us all with the same brush, but uh, who mightn't be that <laughs> up to speed? Because I wouldn't have any use for it or need for it uh, necessarily. Yeah. That that chat thing. Yeah, yeah. Whereas the other stuff we use all the time. So, do you find is there an um, an age? Uh, golf or yeah gap. for for sure they, they are I mean they are tech natives digital natives exactly. AI na almost AI natives as well I mean it's new for some but yeah they've been listening to this a long time and it's very natural um, it's important to listen to their concerns which I, I, I think are really interesting it's around you know wanting ethical approaches to AI making sure there's fairness transparency balance you know as we bring it forward in society because you know it is there it's, yeah. it's outside of Ireland it's inside of Ireland it's outside the EU it's important for Ireland to be leveraging everything possible for the benefit of, benefit of society and mitigating the risks and, and bringing the youth and people of our vintage all yeah. together to have the same conversation. And, you know, and the policymakers listening and they are listening right now because it is so new. And, and, and it's potentially hazardous. And I suppose that's the idea of ethical uh, AI, which is what are your principal concerns or what are generally the principal concerns of the ethics of this? Yeah, a lot of it goes back to um, data, right? So data governance, uh, how was the data obtained? How has it been protected? How has it been used? Did the person that you took the data, of, were you allowed to use that data? Did you ask permission? Um, you know, because remember the, the Cambridge Analytica Facebook yeah. thing? So Changed you know, the, the face of history and elections. Yeah, yeah. 100%. Yeah, and then, you know, GDPR is EU legislation that came in is quite strict around that and that's actually working. It's, it's you know, it's still going through the motion of, of actually enforcing it. Dr. Patricia Scanlon from The Ryan Tuberty Show. And that's it for Playback Daily. So mind yourself till next time.